0: If you have your Bible here this morning, we're going to be one more time in the book of Revelation. For those of you who are joining us today, uh, we have been this whole year preaching through the book of Revelation. It's taken us 33 weeks, and we finally come to the very last message. Today's message will be coming from Revelation 22, beginning in verse 6. And it's been a blessing to me to help you understand this book hopefully better than you did before. This is the only book in the Bible that we know of that comes with a blessing to the reader. Revelation 1 verse 3, Blessed is he who reads the words of the prophecy. You know, if there's one book that Satan could keep us from reading, it would be this one. Because it's the book that tells of his doom and his defeat and the victory of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So I pray that it has been a blessing to you this year as we've studied. Uh, So we've got one more left today, and I pray that it will finish strong. But Revelation 22 and verse 6, the title of our message today is Until He Comes. When Dwight Eisenhower was president of the United States, during his term he took a vacation in Denver, Colorado and as he was there the president's attention was drawn to an open letter that was featured in a local newspaper just so happened that a little six-year-old boy named paul haley was dying of cancer and he expressed in an article that one of his final wishes was to meet the president and one of the president's aides noticed this article and pointed it to the attention of the president and eisenhower then had an aide find the little boy's address and on a Sunday morning in August he was driven in the presidential limousine to the boys house Paul Haley for an unannounced visit and so the president knocked on the front door and he was greeted by Donald Haley who was the boys father of course the newspaper reporters were in tow and they were quick to note Donald Haley's appearance as he came to the door in an old pair of blue jeans and a dirty shirt and a couple of days of scruff on his face there stood behind the father little Paul the president reached out his hand and he said Paul I'm I'm President Eisenhower and I read your article in the newspaper I'm pleased to meet your acquaintance and so the president and the little boy had a brief chat then he invited little Paul out into the street to take a look at the presidential limousine and after some small talk and hugging the boy and he gave him an autograph and a few mementos of that day and then the president went on his way to his next item of business. As you can imagine that visit was the talk of the town for several days. Everybody was ecstatic and shocked that the president of the United States would come to their little neighborhood, except there was one person who wasn't very excited about it, and that was the father, Donald Haley. He said with embarrassment to a reporter, how can I ever forget standing there, dressed like I was in those ratty old blue jeans and that dirty T-shirt and two days of beard on my face to meet the president of the United States? Well, friend, let me tell you this morning, I can tell you of something that would be more shocking, more humiliating, and more embarrassing than that. That is that one day the skies will part, and the trumpet will sound, and the Lord Jesus Christ will appear in the air, and just think of the millions worldwide, both unbelievers and carnal Christians who will be shocked and ashamed at the appearance of the Son of God. Think about it, friend. If the Lord were to appear right now and he were to look into your life, how would you stand? Would you be embarrassed? Would you be surprised? Would you be unprepared as Donald Haley was that day that the president came knocking on his front door? Friend, that's the central issue that the Apostle John writes about as he comes to the conclusion of this amazing book called Revelation and in light of all the prophetic truth that brother John has unfolded for us thus far there's still one question that remains and it is this so what how now shall we live knowing that Christ is going to return what are we to do until he comes you know there are many who view prophecy Kind of like a merit badge that they pin on the lapel of their coat, they walk around very pridefully and they say, "I can tell you about the mark of the beast, six six six, and the seven sealed judgments, and they can interpret for you the most minute detail in prophecy, and yet it hasn't changed their life one bit. It becomes only intellectual knowledge that puffs them up." Vance Havner, who was a southern preacher from years ago. Pinned these words he joked about this very thing saying I know some that are always studying the meaning of the fourth toe on the right foot of some beast in prophecy and they've never used either foot to go out and bring men to Christ so as we come to the end of the book of Revelation I point that out to you because studying prophecy is not about the accumulation of information the study of prophecy is about transformation It should make you different and change you from the inside out. If Revelation and the study of it doesn't change you and how you live on a day-to-day basis, then friend, we have missed the point of why this book was given to us. It's not given just for theoretical knowledge. It's given for the practical, everyday occurrences of life. Now, think of it this way. Just as if we heard news that an impending storm was blowing in our region, whether it be a hurricane or a blizzard or whatever. Or imagine that you heard news that in your family a baby was about to be born. That would change the way that you behave and act in the here and now. Just so the impending and soon return of Jesus Christ should change how we live in the present. And that's the way John concludes this book. It's very practical the way he finishes. And so what I find here in these verses, chapter 22, verses 6 through 21, are five mandates about how we are to live until he comes. Now if you're taking notes today, write down this. Number one, until he comes, we must walk obediently. We must walk obediently. Join me in verse 6 and we'll read it together. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirit of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, verse 7 says, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, when the Bible tells us there in verse 7, blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy, it doesn't mean that we're to buy a Bible and put it on a shelf for safekeeping, or we're to buy a Bible and put it in a drawer and hold it there for safekeeping. But what the word keep there means is obedience. It means to adhere to, it means to walk under the authority of. Now, I know that as we've studied the book of Revelation, we have seen that it is definitely a deep and mysterious read. And God doesn't expect us to understand everything in here. I don't even think John understood everything as it was being revealed to him in the first century. But what God does expect from us is to obey those clear commands that we can understand. And here's good news for you and I today. You don't have to understand fully to obey completely. You don't have to understand fully to obey completely. In fact, that's what faith is all about. I like what Adrian Rogers said about this years ago. Listen to what he said. To know Christ is to love him. To love him is to trust him. To trust him is to obey him. And to obey him is to be blessed by him. There's always a blessing for obedience. Now, one of the commands that we are given to obey here at the end of the book comes in verse 14 and 15. Drop down and read this with me. Blessed, there we go, another beatitude. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and adulterers and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now when the Bible says in verse 14, blessed are those who wash the robes, it's not talking about doing your laundry. <laughs> okay? It's talking about living your life in such a way of personal holiness, walking in a manner worthy of the gospel and the name of Jesus Christ, a life of purity, a life of personal holiness, a life of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ and notice that in verse 15 he talks about those who are outside that is those who don't live in regard to god's word and jesus christ they're excluded from entrance into the heavenly city because they haven't put their faith and trust in the lord in other words what this is telling us is that we must walk obediently we must walk in such a way as if Christ we're going to return this afternoon and we don't want to be found in the muck and the mire of sin and living in such a way that would be disobedient or disgraceful to our Lord one good verse to parallel this with is first John chapter number three and verses two and three look at what the word says there beloved now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be but we know that when he is revealed, oh, watch this, friend, we will be like him, amen, a deathless, ageless, sinless body, for we shall see him as he is. Verse 3, and watch this, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Is holiness important to you? Is walking with the Lord the top of your agenda because the bible says if you take prophecy seriously you will pursue personal holiness i have a joke that often i tell my wife and we joke about it from time to time one way to get the house cleaned the beds made and the floors cleaned and the toys put up is to tell her that company's coming (laughs) now my wife don't don't take me wrong i'm not saying she's a bad housekeeper she's an excellent housekeeper In fact, she's too good to me i've gained a little weight and i probably need to lose some because the cooking's so good she's an excellent housekeeper but sometimes when you got three kids and a busy life you know what happens things fall by the wayside chores get neglected laundry piles up okay somebody say amen if you've lived there before am i just talking about my world or you live there too okay but amazing things that happens when we know that company's coming over when somebody's coming over to enjoy a meal with us or hang out or whatever it's a mad rush of activity the cobwebs in the corners get brushed out the, the beds get made the shelves get dusted the toys get put up why is that because we don't want to be embarrassed when our guests show up we don't want our guests to be put off by Sometimes the tornado that blows through our house. Now I got to thinking about that. You know, if we'll do that for our earthly guests, if we'll do that for our friends, how much more should we do that for the Lord Jesus Christ knowing that he could come calling at any time? So I'm asking you this. Is your house in order? Is your life in such a way that you would be okay to present it to the Lord Jesus Christ? As he talked about that parable in Matthew 25, are your lamps trimmed and burning? Are you expecting him to come? Are you living in such a way that you're living a holy life, a life that honors Christ? Is your house in order? What neglected corners of sin are in your life that needs tidying up? What trash in your life do you need to carry out? What command have you put off obeying that you need to obey right now? You see, until he comes, the Bible says, we should walk, we must walk obediently. And then we see number two in this final prophecy that until he comes, we must worship correctly. We must worship correctly. Notice verse 8 and 9. This is so interesting. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me but he said to me you must not do that I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers the prophets and those who keep the words of this book worship God now as we have studied through the book of Revelation we have discovered that one major theme in this book is worship in fact Punctuated throughout this narrative are several worship scenes in heaven. And there we see gathered around the throne of God, the four living creatures and the angels, the tribulation saints and the church, all praising, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We saw it in chapter 4 and 5. We studied it in chapter 7 and chapter 14. We saw it at the marriage supper of the Lamb in chapter 19. In fact, the whole book is bookended by worship. It's in the beginning and it's in the end. Remember chapter 1 verse 17, John sees the glorified Christ in all his majesty and all his regality and all his power and John, the Bible says, fell down at his feet as though he were dead. Again, when you come to the end of the book here in verse 8, we see John, he's prostrate again in worship. But you'll notice that as you read this, he's rebuked. Because he falls down to worship an angel. Although this was mistaken, although it was inverted, he's worshiping the angel and he's corrected in that. The angel says, don't worship me. All those who trust and believe in God, they worship him. In fact, if you do a little study over in chapter 19, verse 10, he does the same thing back there and he's corrected for the same mistake. Now, why does the Bible point this out? Because the Bible forbids the worship of angels or forbids any other worship besides that of God because all those things, when put in place of God, would be an idol. They're unworthy of worship. This would be no different than the Israelites who made the golden calf after Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. But this scene right here is so instructive to us because it highlights the need in our own worship to make sure that we are focused on the right object. God alone. You know what Jesus said in John 4, verse 24? He said this. It's coming up on the screen. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in what church? Spirit and truth. Now, if you look at that, those verses give us a set of guardrails to keep us on the right track as we worship. You see, worship without the Holy Spirit is dead. Worship without the Holy Spirit is religious ritual. Worship without the Holy Spirit is monotony. But worship without the truth, that's idolatry. And if ever, friend, there was a need to worship God in truth, oh, is it right now? Have you ever seen a day in America or in the religious life of this country, even in Southern Baptist churches, where as you look at the religious landscape, there are all kinds of false gods and false Christs being presented to us. Can I get a witness? Think about it, friend. There's the Christ of the Muslims who tell us that Jesus never died on the cross. There's the Jesus of the cults like the Mormons who say that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. There's the Jesus of the liberal crowd who all they want to talk about is love and acceptance and tolerance. Then there's the Jesus of the prosperity preachers who say that God is like a cosmic Santa Claus here to give you nothing but health and wealth. No kinds of sickness or trial will ever come into your life. Just sow a faith seed and believe in God. There's the Jesus of the politicians who will say, God bless America with one breath and then with the next breath pass some kind of sinful legislation that's going to bring some kind of law or some kind of policy into our country that's going to kick God out. Everybody's got their own version of Jesus in our society. Friend, what happened to the Jesus of the Bible? What happened to the Jesus who's virgin-born and sinless The Jesus who sat and ate with tax collectors and sinners. The Jesus who healed the sick and touched the lepers and healed blind eyes and raised the dead. What happened to the Jesus who rebuked the Pharisees and went into the temple and cleansed it one day? How about the Jesus who walked on water? The Jesus who told his disciples, I'm going away, but I'll be back again someday. How about the Jesus who preached about the sweetness of heaven but wasn't afraid to tell us about the reality of torment and suffering and separation in hell? How about the Jesus who was hated and mocked and scorned and beaten and spit upon and crucified, but that Jesus who got up out of the grave victorious on the third day? How about my Jesus who's not only the Lamb of God but who's coming back as the Lion to rule and reign? Friend, let me tell you, the Jesus of the Bible isn't tame. He's not meek and mild. He's not convenient. He doesn't fit into just one political party or one agenda or one little category. He won't be used for political gain. You can't use him as a dashboard idol to get your way. Friend, he's the name above every name given among men whereby we must be saved. That name and which every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess it. He's king of kings to the glory of God the Father. That's my Jesus. That's my Jesus. So when he says, hey, worship God, he says, make sure you've got the right God. I read an interesting article the other day was in the Associated Press about the Super Bowl. Y'all know I'm a sports fan. You know the Super Bowl is the biggest event in sports, here, at least here in this country. And every year there are clever counterfeiters who are able to forge tickets that look and feel exactly like the real ones. Well, here's what this article said. Last year's Super Bowl, 150 people showed up at Super Bowl 52 in Minneapolis, Minnesota to see the, the game. Actually, this was in 2018 between the Patriots and the Eagles. And they were turned away at the gate, listen to this, because they had bought bogus tickets. And some of those people spent $5,000 a pop only to get to the gate and find out they had a phone in. Imagine the shock and chagrin that people would feel when they find out that they have bought into a counterfeit Jesus. And they come to heaven's gates and they're turned away. He says, I never knew you. You see, the enemy has filled this world with all kinds of frauds and substitutes, but you just give me Jesus. Just give me the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's good enough for me. We have to worship the Christ of the Bible because a counterfeit Jesus leads to a counterfeit salvation. So until He comes, notice this, we must worship correctly and we must walk obediently. And then John continues, number three, until He comes, we must witness urgently. We must witness urgently. Look at verse 10. He says to me, do not steal up the words of the prophecy of this book. For the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil and let the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Wow. So John is told by this angel, don't seal up the words of prophecy for the time is coming. Time is at hand, he says. In other words, the revelation he has received has to be proclaimed to the world. Has to be told. And every day that we go by, the prophetic clock is ticking just that much closer to the inevitable zero hour of the rapture of the church and the return of Jesus Christ. And so we ought to witness urgently. Robert Murray McShane was a great man of God. He preached in Scotland during the 1800s. He died at the age of 30. If you read about his life, you find out that this young man literally burnt out for God. He did more... In his 30 years of life than most people ever do in 80 or 90 or 100 he was like the Billy Graham of Scotland in his day and he had very few earthly possessions at the end of his life and one of the things that he had was a pocket watch and as they gathered together his Bible and a couple other personal effects his pocket watch they noticed that on the back of it was inscribed a verse John 9 4 night is coming when no man can work. Isn't that a good reminder to you and I? How you've only got a little bit of time to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. You've only got a little bit of time to witness to that co-worker, that neighbor, that friend. You've only got three score and ten if you're fortunate to do what you're going to do for the Lord. And then after that, it's over. In my estimation, prophecy is not only one of the best motivators for Christians to get busy in serving the Lord, but it's also one of the greatest incentives for sinners to repent. You see, when you think about the horrific things that this book foretells that are coming on the unbelieving world, we ought to be motivated then to go out and reach as many as we can for Jesus Christ. And moreover, when sinners hear about the wrath of God that is to come, they ought to be moved to run to Jesus Christ because the hour is late and the day is drawing near. Notice the warning that comes with this. Verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plays described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which he has described in this book. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? One reason why this book comes with a stern warning. And the warning is this. Don't tamper with the message. John, you deliver it just as I gave it to you. Don't soften it. Don't dilute it. Don't add extra to it. Just give it as I gave it to you. You know what? That's pretty intimidating when you're a preacher. Because as I began to study this book and I began to reread it again and get immersed in it, let me tell you something. This isn't popular preaching. When you talk about the judgment of God and the tribulation and the reality of hell and the return of Christ, when you start talking about this stuff, Aren't you afraid, preacher, that that's going to turn people away? You see, the temptation is for us in 2019, in our day of tolerance and snowflakeism where everybody's offended at everything, is to dilute the message. And say, well, I'll just skip over that part about judgment and that part about hell and those things that make us uncomfortable about sin. I want people to like me and pat me on the back and say, good job, pastor. But, friend, I don't have that luxury. He says here, Don't you think about taking away from this message. Because if you do, I'll take away your reward in heaven. Wow. Here's the catch. If you soften the truth, you aren't being a faithful witness. And we aren't doing sinners any good. And one of the great burdens of this book is to simply teach it as it is. But at the same time, that's a great blessing of the book. Because when you teach it as it really is, that Jesus is coming, that he's the Lamb of God and the Line of the tribe of Judah and he's coming victoriously and surely and gloriously and powerfully. When you preach that, it's glory and it's encouragement to the saints of God because it reminds us, look at what he's come to rescue us from. And it's, it's great hope and it's great joy. Because what it does is you begin to look at the darkness and the judgment and the sin and the evil and Satan's work and then you backdrop up against Christ and his glory and his power and his coming. It makes amazing grace all that more amazing. And you say, Lord, look at what you have rescued me from. It makes the gospel and the light of Jesus Christ that much brighter against the darkness of the coming storm. So he says... Until He comes, you must witness urgently. Who do you need to reach, friend? Who's that person that God has put on your heart, that you work with, that you go to school with, that you're afraid of what they might think of you if you tell them about Jesus? It's time for the church to stand up and stiffen our back and speak out. We must witness urgently. Number four, until He comes, we must work diligently. We must work diligently, verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the First and the Last, the Beginning and the End. There's two judgments that are coming. There's the great white throne judgment That's for sinners who have rejected Jesus Christ. And then for the church, there's what's called the Bema Seat Judgment. Where we'll stand before Jesus, not on the basis of whether we'll go to heaven or not, but on the basis of what we did for Him, we'll be judged by our works. And that will determine our eternal reward one day in heaven. You see, just because the church is going to heaven, just because you're saved and born again, doesn't mean that you're not accountable. Every Christian. Even me. Every Christian is going to be judged individually, thoroughly, and graciously by the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm coming to repay to everybody the work that they've done. You see, everything about this life is a test. Beginning to learn this. Do you know that everything about this life is a dress rehearsal for eternity? That's where we're really going. This world isn't really our home. This is testing ground. And you see, we're all stewards of the great gifts that God has given us. He's given us all at least three things. He's given us time. He's given us talent. He's given us treasure. What are you doing with your time, your talent, and your treasure? Because when Christ comes and he takes the church out, he's going to judge each and every believer on how we stewarded those things. Did you waste your money or did you invest it in the things that God loves? Did you spend your time on trivial pursuits or did you spend your time trying to win people to the Lord and build the church of Jesus Christ? Did we take our talents for granted or did we take those talents and use them for the glory of God? Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. He relates this to building a house. He says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold or silver or precious stone, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and test each one's work. I read an interesting story the other day in the news, and I'll just paraphrase it for you. It's about a couple in California who were looking forward to getting married. True story. And as they were preparing for marriage, a wildfire came through their town. And the groom had gone out and bought this beautiful diamond ring for his bride to be. It burned down his house. Well, of course, this groom-to-be, he wasn't worried about his TV or his car or his clothes or anything like that. What do you think he was worried about, guys? He wanted to find that ring. And so the story that I read in the news said that this young man, after the smoke cleared and the fires went away, that he went to that burned out ground where his house used to be and he sifted for days and days and days on his hands and knees, crawling through the ashes, looking for that one precious ring. It has a happy ending. He found the ring. And as I read that story, I thought about the judgment seat of Christ. Are you ready to have your life tested by fire? Because the Bible says that one day Jesus Christ is going to look into our lives. He's going to look into our works. He's going to look through our works into our heart and see the very motivation for why we did what we did or why we didn't do what we were supposed to do. And the Bible says if it's not precious stone or gold, it's going to be burnt up. And friend, I have this fear that one day I'm going to stand before God and there's not going to be very much left when Jesus Christ is done perusing and judging my life. And friend, I have this fear that Jesus is going to look at the sermons and he's going to look at the things that I did and said, Derek, your heart wasn't in the right place. I wanted to give you this blessing, but I can't give it to you because there's wood, hay, and stubble. And friend, I want at least one crown to be able to throw at his feet. One crown, Lord, if I could just have one crowd to cast at you because you're worthy. And friend, it puts that great fear in my heart because I don't want to disappoint my Lord. I know the Bible says he's going to wipe away every tear. But I pray that those tears aren't tears of shame in my life, tears of regret where I look back and say, why didn't I do more for him? You see, until He comes, we have to work diligently because the final bell hasn't rung yet and the rewards are still out there to get. So every day that my feet hit the floor, oh, I am motivated. Another day to report to duty for Jesus Christ. What are you going to have me to do today, Lord? Prepare a sermon, witness to somebody, encourage a saint, sweep the floor at church. Whatever, God, you have me to do, I want to do it for you. Is that your heart fifthly is this and I'm done until he comes we must watch expectantly until he comes we must must watch expectantly look in verse 7 look at what it says here and behold I am coming soon you believe that church verse 12 look again behold I I am coming soon. Verse 20, He who testifies to these things says, Surely, in case we didn't get the first two times, I am coming soon. And in the Greek it actually says, Maranatha, Amen, amen, come Lord Jesus. In other words, notice what the text is saying here. Three times. Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. The word translated quickly in the Greek is actually the word tachyos. It's where we get our word tachyometer, that little meter, that gauge on your car's dashboard that measures the engine's RPMs. That word doesn't mean quickly like tomorrow. It means quickly as in the sense that when he comes, it will be suddenly. There'll be no preparing for it. He'll come as a thief in the night. In other words, Jesus isn't saying, look for me a week from next Tuesday. What what he means is, when I'm coming, it'll be like the batting of an eye. So fast that when it happens, nobody will be able to react or change their mind. So friend, whatever we're going to do for the Lord Jesus Christ, we've got to do it now. Only one life will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. A few years ago when I was still a youth pastor, I took a group down to Georgia for go-tell camp. We had a great week. Got to the very last night. I was ready to come home. I was tired of putting up with those boys. <laughs> I was, when you're in a cabin with eight boys who won't take a bath, and Georgia they won't go to bed, <laughs> you're ready to go home. I was ready. I told those boys, I said, it's the last night. I said, I'm going to make you a believer. Tomorrow, at such and such an hour, if you're not on that van, you're going to be left behind because I'm going back to Candler. (laughs) And I'm dropping you jokers off. Well, they were all running around doing crazy stuff, pillow fighting and talking to girls and whatever else. There was one little boy in that group. He's not little now. He's grown up. There was one boy in that group who took me seriously, Clifford. As I came back in that cabin to turn the lights out, I noticed this little boy had packed everything up. He had all of his toiletry items that he would need for that night laying out, toothbrush, toothpaste, soap, deodorant, whatever. And I asked him, I said, son, I said, you know, you still got time to pack. And I said, where's your clothes? Aren't you going to take a bath and you know, get ready for tomorrow? He said, oh, I've already done that. I said, where's your clothes? He said, oh, I've got them on already. I said, what do you mean? He said, these are the clothes I'm going to wear tomorrow. It's the last pair of clean clothes that I got. I'm going to sleep in these clothes and wake up tomorrow and I'm ready to go. And I thought about that. I said, that's good. And then he said to me this. He said, Derek, He said, I'm ready to go because I'm homesick. And I thought about that. And I said, praise God. What if we lived our lives that way? Are you homesick? Are you ready to go? If he were to come today, would you be ready for that? Would you be okay with that? Is your life in order in such a way that if he came right now, you'd say, I'm homesick, let's go. Because you see, the only way to live the Christian life is to live as if Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming back this evening. That's the only way to live life. Are you ready? As our musicians come and as we prepare for this time of invitation, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ in a real, in a transforming way, in a way that has made you look at your life different, you need to come and you need to repent. You need to trust in Him as your Lord and Savior.